For those of you who don't know me, my name is Freddie. I'm the pastor of community groups here at Northview, and it is my pleasure to be here with you this evening uh, to start this new sermon series in the book of 1 Peter. Because it is the first sermon series, or the first sermon in the series, I wanted to quickly give you a summary of of why Mark Birch, our lead pastor, chose this book. As as we're all gathered together as a pastoral team, uh, Mark was asking the question, what, what do our people need right now, in this moment, what do they need to be reminded of from God's word? And we were like, well, probably some theology stuff, probably something about Jesus, probably something about Christian identity, and probably something about enduring and suffering. And Mark's like, you know what? I've been reading 1 Peter. That covers all of those things. So this book that is going to carry us all the way through summer captures all of those things. We have core Christian theology. We're going to start with some big words today. We address suffering. And most importantly, we address Christian identity. Who are you? How should you think of yourself? Back in October 2019, I traveled with Mark Birch to Texas. And as some of you know me, I'm I'm American, so I jumped at the opportunity. I'd never been to Texas. They say everything is bigger there, and they have all kinds of Mexican food, so I was very excited. Uh, The reason we went was not for the Mexican food. We went to a church planting conference, and Mark, Mark needed to go, and he brought along an underling, brought along a young man who he wants to invest in, and maybe one day would also church plant. He happened to pick me. As we traveled there, we had a great time. That was when... That was when I knew, this trip was when I knew Mark and I would be BFFs, best friends forever. Mark doesn't know that we're BFFs, but I know that we're BFFs. Uh, And as we were traveling, I I got to know Mark a lot better, and unfortunately for me, there were some coachable moments. Coachable moments. Uh, If you've ever been around young people, you know what I mean by coachable moments. Young people say and do dumb things, and then And as an older person, as a parent, as a mentor, as a pastor, uh, Mark was like, Freddie, let me just speak into your life. And he gave me a bunch of coachable moments. There were times where he said, Freddie, you need to talk a little bit less. I was like, whoa, that's very direct. You don't know me that well, bro. He said, you want to be my best friend? This is what it looks like. Uh, Mark said, Freddie, you know, sometimes you're funny, but sometimes it's just mean. Which I was like, oh, okay, that one hurts too, but okay, I'll listen to you. Sometimes... Freddie, you need to ask better questions. Like, stop worrying about what you're going to say and just think, what does that person need to share right now? And craft a good question. So he, he gave me a lot of good, good coaching. The best lesson, though, from traveling with Mark was not something he said. It was something he did. As, as we were, you know, in, in the hotel room every single night, uh, we'd go to bed, and, you know, you're plugging everything in, you know, smartwatch, phone, laptop, all that stuff. And I would wake up, you know, I I wake up early. He's an older guy. He wakes up early too. And I'd look over and every single morning, four days in a row, this dude is reading his Bible. First thing, he hadn't even got out of bed. And I was like, Mark, we're on a trip, dude. Like, relax. You can miss a day of Bible reading, man. And Mark, again, cultural moment. He's like, Freddie, I'm not reading because I have to. I'm reading because I want to. This book, it reminds me who I am. First Peter starts by reminding you who you are. If you are here and you are a Christian, those first two verses of the book of First Peter want you to walk away with knowing who am I. I'm a Christian. What is true about me? 
And we're going to interact with one particular phrase, elect exiles. We're going to interact with it for the next 30 plus minutes because uh, it's, it's a theologically rich term. And the, and the thing that I want you to walk away with this evening is that you were made for this moment. What First Peter wants you to know is who you are. And the lesson in that is that you were made for this moment. So if you have a Bible, turn with me. 1 Peter 1, 1 to 2. This is the word of God. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Two short verses, but there's a lot of theology in here. Our first point for this evening is that you were chosen. So we're going to take that phrase, elect exile, and we're going to understand each word in the two-word phrase. So working with chosen, you were chosen. So that phrase, if you've been around the church very long, if you have any kind of formal theological training, you've probably heard elect chosen, called. There's different words that people use. Uh, and in the circles that I run in, in, in my undergrad at CBC, this was kind of a, a scary word, uh, you know, because it's a theologically loaded word. Uh, and, you know, those rotten Calvinists, they take this word and they turn it into all these ideas. And I remember when I was at, at CBC, I was in, in a class uh, on the book of Ephesians. And the instructor tried to avoid this word because he was like, I'm not trying to get into debates. I don't want theology debates. I just want to teach you the Bible. And I understood what he wanted to do. I'm not looking for debates tonight. You can come back tomorrow if you want to debate. I will then. Uh, that was a joke. That was a joke. I'm not looking for debates. I'm not looking for debates. But I, I, I want to teach the Bible. And I think every Christian on the planet can agree with what First, or what First Peter is teaching here, what Peter the Apostle is trying to communicate. What he's trying to teach is something really simple. God did something for you that you could not do for yourself. That's what we mean. When we say God chose, God elected, God did something for you that you could not do for yourself. Every Christian believes that. God does something for us. Right? The natural human condition is that we are separated from God. Right? There's a litany of verses that I could give you that all describe this thing. Colossians 1.21 says that we're hostile and alienated from God. Romans 3.11 says that no one seeks God. So when we ask the question, what, is, what are people like? What is the natural human condition? The Bible says something kind of depressing. And I, I want to draw for you. Hopefully I didn't tape it too. No, there we go. Beautiful. Uh, I want to draw for you what human hearts are like, because I, I think this is critical. If, if you're going to understand who you are in Christ, you need to know who you were before Christ came into your life. So natural human condition, the human heart is wicked. Black. Something is wrong with it. That's what I, I mean when I'm quoting Colossians 1.20. 121 or Romans 3.11, the natural human condition is that something is broken. Something is wrong in here that makes it so you hear the Bible and you're not interested. You, you see the beauty of creation and you think it got here by chance. People are not interested 
in what the Bible teaches. They're not interested in the God who is there. And this is because natural human condition is that you have a, a bad heart. There's something wrong with your affections. And then God jumps in and does something for you that you cannot do for yourself. This is from Ephesians 1, 4 to 5. Even as he, God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he, in love, God, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. This verse is trying to describe how does that get fixed? If that is my natural condition, I have something wrong with my heart, I'm not interested in God, I don't want the gospel, I don't love God, how does that get fixed? 1 Peter 1 says you're elect, and he's referencing this. God did something for you that you could not do for yourself, meaning that he changed your heart. You, you may have heard uh, preachers use the, the illustration, you know, the natural human condition is that we're drowning, right? I'm, I'm in a large body of water, I'm, I'm drowning, and God throws me a life jacket, or, you know, a, a whatever, the life, a lifesaver. God throws me a life-saving flotation device. And I grab the life-saving flotation device, and that's how salvation works, right? That is God doing something for me that I can't do for myself. And I, I understand the, what they're trying to communicate, and, and there is an, a certain amount of truthfulness to that illustration. Yes, God does something for us that we can't do for ourselves. The problem with that illustration is it, it doesn't seem to account for what the Bible teaches about people, the Bible doesn't teach that you're kind of sick, you're kind of drowning, you're fighting for your life. The Bible teaches that you don't like God, that you're hostile toward him. Uh, Ephesians 2.1 says that you are dead in your sin. You're spiritually dead. Your heart is black. It's broken. So the illustration doesn't quite work. If we wanted to make it a little bit more accurate to what Ephesians is trying to teach, what Peter is trying to teach, we would say, well, you weren't actually drowning. You were, you were drowned. Like you were underwater, like you sucked in a bunch of water and you needed someone to drag you out, which is what God did. God dragged you out and he breathed life into your lungs. He gave you CPR. And this, this I think, ties into the human problem. Because if this is the human problem, then what you need is a brand new heart. And this is what God does. It's still wicked, but he gives you a new heart that has something brand new. The Holy Spirit gives you life, and then the Holy Spirit gives you brand new desires, foreign desires to your natural self. You didn't want God. You weren't interested in God. You were hostile towards God. And the Holy Spirit steps in and says, hey, we're going to change things in here. And he does. And you think, Freddie, like, you're, you know, where does 1 Peter say that? It just says elect. You're, you're teaching a lot that's not in the text. So let me show you a text that explicitly teaches this. Galatians 5, verse 16 and 17. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Galatians 5, 16 and 17 is saying, there is, now there's two parts of your heart. There's two things going on. God did something for you that you couldn't do for yourself, and now there's this conflict, this constant conflict that is your life, where you're like, I want to do like godly Christian things, but I also don't. 
There's still a blackness in there, but the spirit has changed something. When Peter thinks of like, what, what do I need to remind Christians about their identity? This is what he starts with. You, the reason you are a Christian is because God changed something inside your heart so that you would love him, that you would delight to do his will. I, I was reading just this morning, and I, Psalm 40, verse 8 says, I, I delight to do your will, God. The verse before that says, God, God gave me that desire. The Bible's trying to say, like, if this is your problem, that you're dead in sin, hostile towards God, alienated from him, then God needs to change something. How do we talk about that? That God did something for you. That God gave you new life. Well, we could summarize it in a phrase, right? In chosen, which is what Peter starts to do. This phenomenon of, of brand new desires that move you towards a new way of living, we see this in our normal everyday life. I've been married just about eight years, or eight years this summer, uh, and my wife is not a natural sports fan. Right, if some of you out there know exactly what I mean, you marry someone that likes a lot of things that you don't, but then as you build a life together, you start liking the things that the other person likes. And last, last uh, fall, last October, my wife and I watched the World Series together. So like we're watching baseball, right? Three-hour game, a guy throwing a ball to try to land inside a tiny box. Like most people don't find that very exciting, but I think it's awesome. And my wife has been married to me for almost eight years, and eight years of someone else loving something, it starts to change you. There's an external effect from someone else loving something. No one loves God more than God. The Holy Spirit is part of the Trinity, which we're gonna to get to in the next point, and God loves God. And if God is inside of you, giving you a new desire, it is no surprise then that Christian life is a bunch of new desires. I want to do certain things that I never considered before. I wanna to listen to Christian music. I wanna read the Bible. I want to pray. Maybe not very long, but where did this desire come from? I never wanted it before. Christian life is that. It's this brand new desire inside your heart, and then that desire walks you in a new direction. Peter summarizes that process as saying, we're chosen. That's what's true of you. When you wonder, like, how did I get here? How did I become a Christian? That's the answer. God chose me, God changed my heart, and now I'm walking in obedience to Jesus. This term then is, is not, or this term is very, very important then. And the rest of 1 Peter is Peter describing the new life of obedience to Jesus. He changes my heart, I walk in obedience to him. What kind of lifestyle does that then mean? Well, in chapter 1, 15 and 16, be holy. In chapter 4, verse 2, live according to the will of God. In chapter 2, verse 11, abstain from the passions of the flesh. All of the Christian life commands come after. They're only possible. Obedience to them is only possible when God changes your heart so that you can obey Christ. Peter is, is picking up on this idea because He's going to command us to live a totally different way. And Christianity is that. The Christian experience is not like, I kind of changed some things. It's a total transformation. It's a full renovation, all the way down to the studs. It's a total transformation, a brand new engine in the car you're working on. And that only is possible when God does something in your heart. 
Christian experience then is that God does something for you that you cannot do for yourself according to his will. He simply chooses. Before we move on though, I, I would be remiss if, if I didn't walk you through the Old Testament background to this term. See, Peter applies this term of elect to people like you and me, like a bunch of Christians, mixed ethnicities. But the way that word gets used in the Old Testament is, is very particular. So if you know your Old Testament and you read Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, this is what it says. This is Yahweh speaking of, of the people of Israel. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you, right? He's elected you, same, same word, to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. There's a whole planet of people. And God says, you, Israel, those are my people. Those are not my people. You are my people. God chooses some. He does something for them that they cannot do for themselves. Those words in Deuteronomy are reflecting on the Exodus, which is the big story in the Old Testament. The whole nation of Israel was stuck in slavery and God rescued them. They didn't prison break, right? God sent someone, rescued them, walked them through the Red Sea, swallowed up Pharaoh's army. God did something for them they could not do for themselves. This word, then, it is a reference to that. Like, that's what it always means. God is doing something for you. But then in the Old Testament, it is exclusively used of, of God's people, of ethnic Jews. Isaiah 41 verse 8 is a great example of this. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, right? So he's using their Jewish names, whom I have chosen, again, same word, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. Isaiah could not be more specific. I'm only talking about this tiny group of people amongst all the peoples of the world. They're mine, they're chosen. I'm doing something for them. And Peter takes that idea and he says, you know what God was doing for them? God was doing something for them that they couldn't do for themselves. Well, now the gospel has changed everything. And now God is doing something for Jew and Gentile, for all kinds of people that they cannot do for themselves. Salvation is available to anyone. And, and this, this word then, Peter uses it knowing that his audience is Gentile, right? He applies it to Jewish and Gentile people, right? We see that in the words that he uses about the locations that, that he's writing to. The dispersion, right? So mixed crowds of people all over the place in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Peter's saying, like, people, people all over the place, right? People on the West Coast, in the Northern Territories, on the prairies, Central Canada, the Maritimes. Like, anywhere there's people, God has chosen some, and he's changing their hearts so that they can obey Christ. If you're a Christian, this is what's true of you. Peter's reminding them of their identity. Peter's reminding us of our identity. Every Christian should think of themselves in this way, as an elect exile, you were chosen by God. And because we are chosen by God, nothing else determines our salvation. That is like tremendously good news. Your performance does not, uh, does not cause your salvation, your church involvement, your frequency in the spiritual disciplines. God does something. God changes your heart and from there flows obedience to Christ. This is tremendous news for people like you and me who constantly fall short. God did something for you that you could not do for yourself. God chooses to save people. 
All kinds of verses in the Bible teach this, right? One of the most famous, obviously, is Ephesians 2, verse 8, where we, we summarize it as salvation is by grace alone through faith alone, right? Grace is unmerited favor. God did something for you that you didn't deserve, and you just believe. You respond. God does something, and you respond. I think the danger in, in Peter using this language is that we're prone to misunderstand it. We hear, God chose me? God did something for me that I couldn't do for myself? I'm done. Right? He gave me a new heart. We're good. But he gave you a new heart for obedience to Christ. God chooses people so that they can respond, which this, that brings us to the crux of the gospel. The, the gospel, right? The, the idea that any person can come to God and receive forgiveness of sins is offered to all people. Like any person, anywhere, any person in this room, if you've not yet believed, if you don't know about this Bible thing, about this Jesus thing, about this sin thing, if you, this language is brand new to you, the offer is still available to you. Jesus famously said in John chapter 12, verse 32, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, right, when, me on the cross, when I give my life for sinners, I will draw all people to myself. God chooses people so that they can respond. If you are here and you've never responded, you should. Because we see the kind of God who makes this offer to everyone. I'm drawing all people. So respond. First point is you were chosen. Second point is this is your moment. We'll read the passage again because it's very short. First Peter 1, verse 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Again, the key word there, or the key phrase is elect exiles. We talked about elect, we talked about chosen, and now we're gonna talk about exile. When, this phrase, again, very, very theologically loaded, but a lot less contentious. Not a lot of people argue about this. Uh, what it does remind us of, because of the term, and then because of the, the phrase dispersion, that first Peter is a circular letter. Often in the New Testament, when we, we get to a book, it says, you know, this is the first epistle to the Corinthians. This is the epistle to the Ephesians. There's an, there's an intended audience. Peter's intended audience is everybody in modern-day Turkey. Like the entire region, five or six different Roman provinces, he's saying, I'm writing to all of you. I got a message for all of you. You need to know who you are. You're elect exiles. All kinds of people, mixed groups of people, and the order of those, those places is quite likely the way that the messenger would have carried the letter. First Peter wrote uh, through, through a scribe and then probably sealed the letters and then they were carried and they were carried through each region. A whole bunch of people were gonna hear these words. A whole bunch of Christian people were gonna be reminded what is true about them, that they were chosen, but that they're also exiles. Again, there's a significant Old Testament background to this phrase is a lot less happy than chosen. The, the, the exile in the Old Testament refers to the punishment the people of Israel had for their disobedience. 
right? When we say God chooses people, he chooses people, he does something for them that they cannot do for themselves, gives them new hearts, and they respond in obedience. If they do not respond in obedience, God gives them punishment. That's the way the Old Testament worked. God sent his, his prophets, God sent judges to remind people like, hey, you gotta obey me. I chose you and you respond, you obey. And a bunch of them didn't. And then when we read through the Old Testament, we're, we're told in, in Leviticus 26 is, is one of the places that if Israel does not obey, they will be sent to exile. They will be scattered amongst the nations. And Peter picks up on this language. Peter picks up on this idea and he says, yes, God chose you and yes, God scattered you, but you, you're still his people. You need to know who you are. And this phrase, like I, we can't really understand how heavy it would feel for that first audience, right? We, we, we understand having a bad day, right? You, you wake up late, you miss your alarm, and you're, you know, you're late to work or you're late to school. You get into a big fight with your spouse or, or a very close friend. Uh, you know, the Canucks get eliminated from the playoffs. Like, whatever it is that makes you grouchy. Like, we all have bad days, right? Every one of us has had a bad day. Israel was having a bad life. Like, they, it's pretty hard to focus on anything good in your life when all you can think of, when all you can be reminded of is, I'm not home. Israel was in a brand new place with brand new languages and brand new cultures. And then every single day they would, you know, walk out of their home and they would see, oh, no temple, no king. We don't have a prophet, so we don't know God's will. Like, I feel abandoned. And that was their situation for 70 years. This wasn't, it's not a fun word. Chosen is an encouraging word. Exile is not a fun word. And Peter uses both for these people. But I think he uses both because even in the Old Testament, even in the depths of the suffering of the despair of the people of Israel, God gives them hope because that's how kind our God is. In Jeremiah 29, the prophet Jeremiah, speaking for God, writes a letter to the exiles, and this is what he says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile, don't think this is by chance. I put you there because you disobeyed me. Remember Leviticus 26, but I have hope for you. Here's what he says. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and do not decrease. Oh, sorry. And give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. And do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. In summary, Jeremiah writes to these people in despair who are having a bad life and he says, build a life there. Start over. He tells them, bloom where you're planted. Right? If you ever walked in, around this time of year, right, everything's sprouting. And one of my favorite things to find, not on my lawn, but on the sidewalk, are dandelions. Right? They'll, they'll grow anywhere. They're robust little plants. They're very annoying on your lawn. But when you see them on the sidewalk, when you see them on the curb, you're like, man, those things will grow through anything. Jeremiah is saying, Israel, grow through anything. Unpack the suitcase. Stop renting. Right? Buy a piece of dirt and build your dream house. You're going to be here a while. 
And that message, that message is what Peter has for his audience and what I think the word of God has for us. Christian life is like simultaneously super long and super short. You have to be faithful in the moment, but you have a lifetime of moments to be faithful. And the command in Jeremiah 22, uh, well, I think what Peter is picking up is we need to be a blessing to people. Peter makes this explicit as you work through the rest of his letter. In chapter two, he says, have honorable conduct. Like be around people, engage with people. You're, you're not home, but build a life there. In chapter three, he says, keep a clean conscience. Like be the kind of person who everyone knows has integrity. This requires relationships. This requires building a life, putting down roots. And Peter is saying, this is what God would have for you. You're elect, you're chosen, and you're exiles. God is doing something in your life. And build a life. Be a blessing to people. Put down roots right now. Before we move on to like, applying this, I, I want to... I want to emphasize something that Peter also teaches us in the midst of that, in the midst of telling us how to live, reminding us who we are. He teaches us how someone becomes a Christian. And it's pretty cool that he connects it to the character of God, to the, the person of God. So he uses three phrases, foreknown by God, sprinkled by the blood of Jesus, and sanctified by the Spirit. Right? Father, Son, and Spirit. And each one of them does something for you. When, when, earlier when I said, God does something for you that you cannot do for yourself, Peter elaborates on that by showing how God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit work together to save sinners. And he gives us some key phrases here. The first one is foreknown. So this is what we talked about from Ephesians 1, right? That God chooses to save some according to his will. And I think that requires a little bit of explanation because Quite often, we, we misunderstand, I think, the, the nature of God's choosing. And, and in our minds, it's, it's random, right? God just goes, these guys, chosen. Bummer. Right? We're like, ah, oh, bummer. Shouldn't have sat on that side, I guess. Right? It feels like it's, it's, it's random. Right? I, I remember a couple years back, uh, Elmo Paul, I've talked about this before. I love that place in Sumas. And me and the homie Deepak went there, uh, two brown guys in a vehicle, and we got randomly selected. Uh, it, it did not feel very fair, to be honest with you. Uh, and I think that we think that that's how election is. You know, you're, you're at the toll booth, and God is like, yeah, I'm going to randomly select you right now. And you're like, that doesn't seem very fair. There's a whole bunch of cars behind me that are still waiting. There's a bunch of cars that got through. They didn't get randomly selected. God, how, how, is that how you choose? You just flip a coin? The, the computer randomly selects me? We think of God's election. We think of God's choosing, and we think it's random. And if it's random, it's not fair. It's not good. But the scriptures teach that God's choosing is intentional. Ephesians 1.5 says it's according to his will. He had a plan. He's doing something. Right? So like, imagine with me that you're making banana bread. Everyone loves banana bread with chocolate chips. Right? What kind of bananas do you want for banana bread with chocolate chips? Ripe. Like almost rotten. Amen. Right? You want the softest like most bruised bananas you can find because that, that makes the best banana bread, 
right? And, and you're at the grocery store and like you'll dig through the pile and you'll find the ripest banana and you'll take it home and you'll put it in a bag with an apple and then tomorrow morning, that thing is ready to go, right? You're, choose, you're choosing, but you're looking for a particular thing. So sometimes we'll think, okay, no, it's according to God's will. So he's choosing, right? He's looking for the right kind of people. The limitation in this illustration is it makes it seem like you're a good banana. Uh, and I have bad news for you. According to this graph, you are not a good banana. No one is a good banana. No banana is ripe. All, you are all the bananas. None of you are ripe. If we were to continue the illustration, you're actually not a banana, you're a rock, right? Or you're a dead banana, I guess, uh, which not very encouraging. But my point is God's choosing is not random. It is in fact intentional. And in that, like we have to be honest, there, there is a bit of a mystery there. I, I don't know why God chooses some and does not choose others. And Peter doesn't seem to care. Peter just says, hey, just so you know, you're an elect exile. You're chosen by God and he's having you bloom. Bloom where you're planted. Peter doesn't care to walk through all the details of how all this happens. And I think there's a lesson in there for us. It, it is a mystery, but we can rejoice in that mystery because God chooses people. And if you're a Christian, God chose you. And that's a good thing because God gave you a new heart with new desires that lead you into obedience to Christ. God did something for you that you could not do for yourself. You're foreknown by God. You're also sprinkled by the blood of Jesus. This is Peter being as explicit as he can be. The only way any sinful person with, with a dark heart, alienated from God, hostile to God, the only way that kind of person can be, can be given a new heart is if God forgives them of, of their rebellion. And the way someone can be forgiven of their rebellion is via a sacrifice. We see this all the way back in the, New Test, or in the Old Testament, Exodus 24, 6 to 7, where we read this. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood, this is the blood of a sacrificial animal, he threw against the altar, right? He sprinkles it. And then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. In this few verses, we see the same pattern that gets described by chosen or by elect exile. God chose them, he rescued them, he did something for them they could not do for themselves. And then they respond in obedience, which they explicitly say, we're gonna do what you command us to, God. And this is when, when Peter thinks of how salvation works. He's not thinking of animals. He's saying, no, what, what God foreshadowed back then by an animal sacrifice that was repeated thousands of times because people constantly fall short, Jesus did once and for all. Jesus died one time on one cross for all the sins, past, present, future, of all God's people. And you're like, praise God, amen, right? That's, that's a good thing. Jesus dies so that sinners can live. God foreknows, Jesus sprinkles with his blood, and then the Holy Spirit sanctifies. With this, this trajectory is Christian life. God chooses you, he does something for you, he forgives you of your sin through the sacrifice of Jesus. The Holy Spirit then comes in and changes your heart, right? The language of sanctification is that. Galatians 5, 16 to 17 describes desires of the flesh, desires of the spirit, and they are in conflict with one another. That's Christian life. 
Christian life is that I can have a conflict. Before I was a Christian, I didn't have a conflict. I was just dead in sin. And Peter describes salvation, foreknown by God, sprinkled by the blood of Jesus, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And he uses Trinitarian language because this is significant for us. The only thing more important than who you are, elect exile, is who God is. And Peter describes it explicitly, showing us the fullness of the person or of, of the being of God. Three persons in one being. It, this is, it's not often that we find all three persons of the Godhead in one scene like we do here in, in verse two. So I'm gonna give you one more from, from the Gospel of Mark. Right? What the Bible often does is it tells us a story and teaches us theology in the midst of that story. God is revealing who he is. We see this in Mark chapter one, verses nine to 11. In those, this is the baptism of Jesus. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. In this passage, again, we see all three characters. God the Father, a voice in the heaven, God the Son, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, God the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove. The Gospel of Mark is teaching us the story of Jesus, but also showing us who God is. Peter is describing for us how Christians get saved, but also showing us who God is. Christian life is obedience to Jesus. It's obedience to the word of God, but you have to know the God that you're obeying. And we get all of that mixed in together. All of this brings us, I think, to the, the crux of the reason that, that Peter names them elect exiles. You need to know who you are so you know how to live. And Peter's point, as you work through the rest of this book, is if you are a Christian, there is a totally new way of living. If you're a Christian, your entire life includes obedience to Jesus. Jeremiah 29, seven, I read it before. I'm gonna read verse seven again. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Christian life then, this response includes obedience to God, but I think also a blessing to others. Christian life means then that as we live, as we put down our roots like a dandelion on the sidewalk, we're saying, God, I wanna bless people here wherever it is that I live. I want to bless the people that are close to me. Peter, again, makes this explicit. He, all of Peter, he wants you to know who you are so he can tell you how to live. First Peter 3, verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Peter's working with the idea from Jeremiah 29 that he highlighted already in verse 1. Christian life is being a blessing to other people as obedience to God. And if that is true, if that is true, that means that God is not surprised by anything in this cultural moment. I think we have been in a, in a, in a cultural moment where we think that because things are hard, some of the commands of scripture, some of the challenges of scripture, we can put on pause. Right, like we, there has been a tremendous amount 
of, of racial reconciliation and racial issues that have come over the last two or three years. There has been a tremendous amount of political activism, good and bad, over the last number of years. We've just, I guess we're, we're still in the, in the ending parts of, of a global pandemic. And all of those things, the, the political stuff, the racial stuff, the COVID stuff, the common denominator in all of them is relational fracturing. And we've all lived through it. And I gotta be honest with you, in, in the midst of some of the darker days, because we all have them, I've thought to myself, you know, I can pause Christian life. God, God, you don't need me to be a blessing to that person. Because look at them. And then you read God's word. And Peter explicitly says, bless people who have paid you evil, who have reviled you. The people in Peter's world were experiencing persecution. They were being slandered. They were being teased. They, they were experiencing partiality as they got cut out from public life. His world is exactly like ours. And to those people, Peter says, you're an elect exile. Be a blessing in this exile that you are in. This is your moment. So if this is your moment, I want to ask you, how are you blessing people? And if you don't know how to answer that question, let me give you a diagnosis question. If today or tomorrow you passed away, heaven forbid, but if you did, who would feel that the most? All of us would say, well, like my spouse, my children, my very close friends, my family. But if you are a Christian, you should also say, well, and, and this person that I'm discipling uh, and, and this friendship that I'm trying to build with this non-Christian and this organization that I have committed a lot of time and money into helping. We are commanded to be a blessing. And we think that hard times excuses us from that. This book is going to challenge you as we continue listening to it, or as we continue listening to the preaching of it. This book is going to challenge you because you need to know that this is your moment right now, in, in our, the culture that we're in, in the moment that we're in in time, God made you, you were made for this moment. God called you, God chose you, God did something for you that you could not do for yourself so that you would be a Christian today. That changes everything. This is your moment. You were made for this moment. One of the reasons we read the Bible is to be reminded of this fact. I'm here to remind you of this fact that you were made for this moment. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word uh, that challenges us, Lord, that also encourages us. We know we are chosen. You've done something for us that we could not do for ourselves. We've received grace, unmerited favor. Uh, but we're also challenged, Lord. So I pray that you make our hearts soft. And that as we continue hearing from your word in 1 Peter, Lord, that we'd be the kind of people who are a blessing to others, no matter what, no matter if we're reviled, no matter if we're disliked, no matter if we're ostracized. God, help us be your people in this moment. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.